What up, Danny? What's up, Tyler? This is episode 79 of Fried Squirms, and we're here to talk to you about another movie. Yeah, and this week is another fun film. We just came out of a really fun episode with some of our friends. Yeah, go back and check out Pet Cemetery if you would. That would be awesome, because we had so much fun doing it. But this week, we're going to be hitting Battle Royale. Dude, fun film. Came out... 2000? 2000. Yeah, so... I'm looking forward to getting to talk about the air in just a few, but uh, like we do from week to week, we like to maybe share some news or kind of what we've been up to, so would you like to lead off this week? Dude, I got nothing. Okay, well. Well, okay. I got nothing for this week, but it's more than, it's still too early to tell. I might have news coming up in later weeks that might, it might roll into something big. That's all I want to say for now, but we'll see. It's too early to say too much. I was up to a little bit this weekend, but... I'm going to leave it at that. Nice. I've got a couple of bits of information to share. Now, I mentioned to you this past Saturday I watched a film that just kind of dropped on Blu-ray. But my sister and my brother-in-law, we checked out A Quiet Place, and without saying any kind of spoilers or anything, it was a fun film. didn't blow me away. It wasn't a bad film, or you know, it wasn't a great film, but it's enjoyable. I think for people who are really not that big into horror, they'll probably enjoy it. It's like a, a good film for general audiences. So we took that in on Saturday. Some of the new Blu-ray releases that I saw, one I kind of want, but I'm like, I don't want to drop that much for it. But I did see where Scream Factory are releasing a stillbook copy of Night of the Demons from like 1987. And along with it, it's going to come with a Nika figure of one of the characters in the film. It's like, oh, I kind of want it, but I'm not ready to drop like 60 bucks on it right now. Right. But for those who are curious, it's limited to a 2,000 copy release. So there's only going to be 2,000 copies of that. Once it goes out of print, you know, it's going to get stupid, ridiculously expensive. Now, some other information that I, it kind of pertains more to the podcast itself is I did see that Zombieland 2 is official with director and Ruben Fleischer, and all the stars are returning. And this oh, is yeah. set for next year. Fuck, I guess I did see that. I could have brought that up. That, and they've released the first images of the new Godzilla. I saw a little bit of news of that. I haven't watched this yet, but this might be good for maybe in between our segments. But Rob Zombie has shared the Three from Hell teaser trailer. I haven't watched it, but from what I understand is it doesn't show any new footage. Okay, that's It's okay. kind of just a teaser, I think, with narration. That's kind of like flashback images setting up shit. But he has been saying that he's going to be showing a trailer during his upcoming tour with Marilyn Manson, I believe. Yeah. I think they're touring I think you're absolutely right. And it's currently unsure whether he means a full trailer or just this teaser that he's already put out, but probably a full trailer. Well, I'm looking forward to it. I know we're fans of Rob Zombie's films, so yeah, it's going to be fun. Let's back up and talk about Three from Hell for a second, because I know that we're both really curious how this is all going to play out. It kind of looks like they just survived the end. Exactly. But through the promotional images that have been put out so far, we also know that Rondo is coming back, Danny Trejo. Yep. But Billy Ray Snapper isn't. Yeah, I did see some of that information regarding, was it the two from whatever? Yeah, the Unholy Two. Yeah, exactly. But it's kind of unfortunate DDP's not back. Right. Uh, But what do you think's up with that? Why do we get Rondo back and not. I don't know. That's a good question. I guess we'll find out in Man, due time. I'm so but curious yeah, that about is, how this is going to fucking roll it's out. Interesting. Like, it already seems small spoiler. Skip ahead like ten seconds. It already seems weird that they fucking live through the end. So yeah, considering right. 
But okay, I mean, I'm willing to roll with it if it means I get no, to see I'm more. So totally all right with it. I think probably just knowing the little bit of information that we do know, I'm kind of curious how much of the supernatural is going to come into play with this film. God, I kind of hope so. That'd be kind of dope. Because that opens Might up well a whole another. I, I don't give a shit. Like we already got two movies I fucking love. If he wants to go Likewise. crazy with it, like, I'm okay with let that. him go crazy with it. I just want more Firefly family. Likewise. So yeah, that's an interesting concept, bringing back Trejo. It's going to be interesting to see which direction they go, considering they're bringing them back. So looking forward to it. Now, one thing I think you probably already know about, but I just saw kind of scrolling through some of these news bits, is that it sounds like Kevin Smith on Hollywood Babylon said he was once offered to pen the remake of Cujo. And that was kind of interesting. So this is kind of quoting Kevin Smith. He said that, I thought it, that it was done well enough the first time. At one point, somebody called up to see if it'd be interesting in writing a new Cujo. I think that must be on the latest Hollywood Babylon, which I'm halfway through listening to right now. And he hasn't got to talking about that part yet. Nice. So I actually haven't heard that okay. yet. But there is a little bit of news that I forgot to mention like a month ago, or maybe even a month and a half ago now at this point. I can't remember where Moose Jaws was floundering for a little bit, but it has got financial backing, nice. so they will be going through with it after uh, Jan Silent Bob reboot. Well, cool. That'd be interesting. I thought it was kind of neat that he could have potentially penned Cujo, a remake. Wait, oh, yeah, and... Oh, fuck. Do you know the, the plot for Jan Silent Bob reboot? This is completely away I from really horror, don't, but, but, I mean, we're talking it's about It's fucking Smith. brilliant, right? Because Jan Silent Bob Strike Back, they're going to try to stop a movie... Where their likenesses are being ripped off, they want to get their fucking movie money. Right? Exactly. Or well, they just want to get it stopped until they find out they can get their fucking movie money. You know. <laughs> yeah. Reboot. They're making a reboot of the movie, so they have to go back to Hollywood. That's to fucking hilarious. Stop the reboot. <laughs> I like it already. <laughs> Man, I really enjoy that film. That might be one of my favorites out of the whole bunch of the Kevin Smith films. I'm looking forward to also, that. Also, for him, because I'm a fanboy, I'm going to plug watching Hollyweed. Oh, yeah, I did see that. It wasn't, like, in purgatory for a while. Yeah, and there's this new... God, I, I don't remember the name of the service, but there's this new thing coming up for shows like that, basically, where pilots failed or whatever, and they give them another chance at life. They throw them up on YouTube and their own streaming service or whatever. I don't know. I, I don't know all the fucking details because I've never made a fucking failed pilot. <laughs> Not yet. All, yeah, right. All my pilots succeed. <laughs> all zero. And then people, if they like it, they can pre-order further episodes. That's and at awesome. a certain level of funding, you know, They'll if it gets it, to yeah. a certain level of funding, then they're like, cool, and they go ahead and make more. Hell yeah. That's so a smart concept, sorta, too, for yeah, so shows. Yeah, so it that... gives these shows a second chance at exactly. life. Hollyweed is one of those shows, and it's basically clerks in a dispensary. I Hell watched yeah. it yesterday, or two days ago. I really liked it. Especially for a pilot, you know that things only smooth over as they go on. Right, exactly. Fucking Donnell Rawlings is in it. Fucking nice. Ashy Larry. Fucking brilliant. Nice, uh, dude. Adam Brody's in it. No shit. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Um, Ralph Garman, if you listen to Babylon. Yeah. Like, I'm no just going to fucking is. go on and... There you go, Kevin Smith. There's your commercial. I say go watch <laughs> Hollyweed. I really liked it. Might not be everybody's cup of tea, but you actually get to see the man fucking act. That's pretty awesome. Now let's get back to horror. <laughs> okay. So... With that, too, we have talked about this streaming service since we're on streaming services. Shudder, this past Friday, they did a marathon with a horror legend, Joe Bob Briggs. And well, apparently, they tried to do a marathon. Yeah, I was going to say, apparently they broke the internet is what happened. 
So because they broke of the, the high, horror internet, because of the high demand of people who like took the day off from work to go watch this whole marathon. Now, for those who are unfamiliar with Joe Bob Briggs, he hosted a TNT show from 1991 through 2000, and that show was Monster Vision. And the, you know they would show horror films. He'd give us commentary, just kind of give you some neat little beats here and there. And uh, I watch them on occasion. I was about to say that's where I saw a lot of these early. Different. I mean, Monster Vision. Monsters in the fucking title. Every once in yeah, a while, they exactly. roll out some fucking Godzilla. I mentioned Godzilla earlier because I'm a fan. You know what I mean? Like, exactly, dude. I mean, they're fun monster movies. Japanese. <laughs> so it's all relevant. But I thought it was kind of neat that you know there was people who are willing to get the service. Now I will say this: there's big backlash. If you don't like reading comments, I'd say stay away from some of the comment threads. But I understand the frustration. But you also have to think is that. They weren't anticipating that kind of high rate of people getting yeah, on board. I mean, I know it's frustrating, but if you're a fan, you should really only look at it as like a good thing. It shows how many people fucking care about the same thing that you right. do. Exactly, dude. So, yes, it sucks that for the people who did try I to watch it all day. I understand the frustration. Yeah, that's what I'm getting at. Completely understand that. Now, from what I understand is that Shutter is doing like they're on demand. And they're going to replay the entire marathon. So for those who didn't get to see it in, in its entirety the first time around, like probably everybody, they're going to reshow it. So, I mean, yeah, I know it's not live, but they're still offering that. So I thought it was kind of neat. But I still like Shudder, dude. I mean, yeah, yeah, that sucks. But I love their catalog. They've got curators who come on. And, you know, they have some really cool documentaries. So I'm, I'm a big fan. And as a reasonably what? priced streaming service. This week's episode, you can find the theatrical cut on Shudder. See? It makes it convenient for us. Who I like mean, not do, our episode. But I mean, no, the mo- but Battle the movie Royale. in general. Yeah, I wish we were on That Shutter. would be fucking awesome. <laughs> Maybe uh, one Shutter. day, Shudder. <laughs> Plugging you. But just wanted to throw that out there. It's relevant to what we're doing today, and it's just relevant in general. So thanks for breaking the internet, horror fans. Way to go. Do you got anything else? Because now that you've awakened in me that I did have a little bit to talk about, now I'm out. One other thing I'll mention, and I talked about this to you before we started recording, is that somebody owes me a smoothie this week at work (laughs) because France did win the World Cup this past Sunday, and I'm a fan of soccer, so, or football. So I watched it, and I was like, yes. The funny thing is, is like, the score I predicted was 2-1, and that was the score of both halves. There was 2-1 in both halves. (laughs) I was like, shit, I could have won two lunches. Well, uh, congratulations. Yeah, so. Way to win. Both you and France. Yes, vive la France. I stopped paying attention when Brazil was out. Yeah. I, I take that back. I stopped paying attention when England was out. I have a lot of friends that go for England. Yeah, so. I was kind of rooting for England, too, because I do watch the premiership. But aside from that, I know we're geeking out. But that's about really the only other thing I had to share this week. Aside from that, I'm looking forward to talking about the film that we have today. All right, Battle Royale, Guts and Bolts, Go. talk about the guts and bolts about this film yeah so let's see let's start with synopsis right yeah i think that's a good place to start all right battle royale 
I don't like making this comparison because of which one came first. However, I will acknowledge that one obviously has a much wider fan base than this. So this is Japanese hard R Hunger Games. Completely agree with that. Stripped down to the basics. This ain't no crazy ass fucking futuristic crazy sci-fi world. This is students on a fucking island, Lord of the Flies style. Exactly. 2000 Japan. <clears throat> Basically, and that's the alternate year future. Yeah, yes, alternate think, yes. Japan, totally alternate. alternate history, precisely. So, with that, I think that's a good brief synopsis. We do like to talk about the people who go into making the film, and with that, I can lead off with our director, big name in Japanese cinema, for the reasons is this is Kinji Fukasaku, his film, and he's done such films. Was this his last? Next, well, I won't say next to last. Well, he started of working last, on yeah. two. Exactly, and, and that was his, when... officially his last one, mm-hmm. but yeah. But this was right there near it. So Kenji's known for directing Japanese films such as Fall Guy, Crest of Betrayal, House on Fire, and Doton Boro River, and those won like Japanese awards for best films the years they came out. He's also known for directing Tora, 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 the Japanese portion of the film. He's done films such as Battles Without Honor and Humanity, Shogun Samurai, Message from Space, and he's also directed a video game, Clock Tower 3. I just wanted to confirm it real quick. This was his last full final film. He shot one scene of Battle Royale 2 before he succumbed to prostate cancer. And there is a person on this film I'm about to mention who actually finished that film. So with that, we do have two writers on this film. One of them, he's not necessarily a writer for the film, but it's based off his novel. And that is Koyushin Takami. He did the Battle Royale. What year did that come out? Do you know? 1999. Yeah. Do you own it still? I do own it. Nice. Now, is it a novel per se, or is it more of a manga? Oh, well, there is a manga. Okay. That was made later. Okay. The novel came first, just barely before the film, obviously, since the film is a 2000 movie. And I can't remember when they started the manga. I think it was like 03 or 04. The manga lasts a number of volumes. It is big. Let me go into the other room real quick, though, and I want to show you something. Yeah. Uh, I'll be right back. No worries. So with that, I did mention the person who wrote the screenplay is Kenta Fukasaku, and that is the son of Kenji. And he actually is the one who finished directing Battle Royale 2. Now, he's also directed five episodes of Blade, the television series from 2011. That's basically his biggest credits. That was, by the way, a very piece of shit TV series. Now, the manga is rather long. The book is no fucking joke either, as you can see right here. Yeah, it's pretty thick, is what she said. But I actually, I want to start off by mentioning that I kind of feel like I failed you all this episode. From a technical standpoint, when we started in on the Purge movies... I rebought the novel. I already have it in digital format, and I've read it before. I bought it like a hard version so I could read it while we were going through the purge, so I could have more to talk about this episode because we knew that we were going to do it mm-hmm. pretty soon after the purge. I didn't read it. No, it's a pretty heavy book. I read it for like, like I read it for like two days. Yeah, and then I started playing a lot of video games. <laughs> uh, I'll admit <laughs> I it straight away. That. I have read it before though a couple times, although it's been a few years. So I did jot down some notes That's of cool. some of the differences. But I kind of wanted to bring out the book to realize I could have been making notes for fucking days because there's no way you're fitting that size of book Into in a two-hour movie. Yeah, no way. And that's taking a lot. 
So along with our writers, we have a cinematographer. His name is Katsumi Yanagishima. And he has done cinematography on such films as A Scene at the Sea, Sonatani, Zetochi, Kids Return, Kikujiru, which I mentioned I've seen did before. Did he work on the same Zatoichi that Beat Takashi did? I believe so. I think he is the cinematographer for most of Beat Takashi's films, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. Yeah. Because there's been a lot of Zatoichi before, The Blind Swordsman. Yeah, but, we're actually going to be mentioning that in a minute. Yeah. But Beat worked on some, so... So cool, yeah. Now, he's also the cinematographer on The Grudge 2 in a film called Shutter, which these are all Japanese films, of course. Our editor on this film is Hirohide Abe. You know, he's done editing on films such as Sharaku, Welcome Back, Mr. McDonald, and Flower and Sword. Our music, we do want to mention two things. One is the composer and the actual orchestra, because there's a lot of orchestral pieces in this. So there was the Warsaw Philharmonic Orchestra who helped with those pieces, and our composer was Masamichi Amanu, and he's composed music for the films The Warrior. He's actually composed music for the video game Onimusha 3, Demon Siege. Great game. I beat that one. <laughs> if you're familiar with Bleach, the movie Hellverse, he did the music for that. He's also done music for Shin Godzilla, The Geisha House, and Django Unchained, and Battle Royale 2. It's probably worth pointing out that there are a couple Western classical pieces also mixed in. Certainly are. With a Verity piece being very, huge, yeah. very, very prominent. So, I like the scene they use it in, too. It's really cool. Now, there are a few special effects teams. I have Malin Post, Nippon Eitsu Creative, and Toei Labo Tech. They all helped with the visual effects on this. Now, there's a shit ton of producers. I'll name a few. So our producers on this are the father and son duo, Kenta and Kenji Fukasaku. There's Kimio Keteoka, Chie Kobayashi, Toshio Nabashima, and Masumi Okeda. A lot of production companies. Our production companies are AM Associates, Fukasaku Gumi, they were in association with. There's Gaga, G-A-G-A, Kobe Company, MF Pictures, Nippon Shupen Hanbei, they're known as Nippan Keke, Toei Company, and Wow Wow. <laughs> so they yeah, so there's quite a few production companies in this. Our distributors for this were Toei. They were the company who helped produce the 2000 Japanese theatrical release. Tartan Films, they helped with the 2001 United Kingdom theatrical release. And I think you have a copy of Anchor Bay's. They helped with the 2000. I have the March 20th, 2012. Anchor Bay Complete Collection for disc release. pretty dope. Now, Anchor Bay helped with the 2011 USA Theatrical 3D version. And, oh, and I still have not watched Battle Royale 2, even though I have I haven't either. I know it's available for streaming, so maybe. Oh, I might have to check it out. All right, now the release dates, there's a few on this. We have October 2000. This premiered at the Tokyo International Film Festival. December 16, 2000. That was the Japanese its official release for the public. It had a March 23, 2001 United States premiere at the Cleveland International Film Festival and September 14, 2001 in the United Kingdom and in Ireland. Now, the budget for this film, it had an estimated $4.5 million budget. It's opening weekend. Now, this is in yen, and it made 67.6 million yen in Japan. That was dated December 21st, 2000. If I'm not mistaken, I think there's like eight pennies to every do U.S. dollars. That's like the conversion rate, so if you do the math. It grossed 
$25.9 million worldwide, and in Japan, the yen is $3.11 billion. Sounds like a lot, but it roughly comes out to be like $27 million, I think. Its taglines, I wrote down a few because there are quite a few, but the taglines I have, one is, could you kill your best friend? The second one I have is 42 students, three days, one survivor, no rules. And the third I have for this is their game, no rules, no prisoners. I love all of those taglines. They're pretty accurate. I love this movie. There's a reason I own that edition. Yeah, I can't blame you, dude. When you showed it to me, I was like, damn, that's fucking nice. I wish I had this. <laughs> it's pretty nice. I'll have to look for it. But... I do want to get it on Blu-ray, though, just for the picture quality. I completely understand that, but it's fucking dope. All right, so that is our crew who went into making the film, and now we get to talk about our awesome loaded cast. Right. Now, this is a rather loaded cast, though I do feel like a lot of them, the credits are either going to be super obscure or... <laughs> I mean, you might but be not, surprised. But no, no, not. I mean, some of them definitely people are going to know, but yeah. we're not going to talk about every kid. No, we can't talk about every kid. I now, there's 42 the kids ones. involved in this fucking movie. Oh, my God. <laughs> so we're not naming them all. <laughs> I'm thinking our whole fucking podcast could be just on the kids. We're not naming them all. No, no, no. We'll name... The ones, I think, who have a little bit more prominent role in this film. All right, okay. so the first person I want to mention, not a kid, probably the biggest draw in this film. We've oh, already mentioned him. Jesus, right? Yeah. I fucking love this man whenever I see him appear in something. Beat Takeshi. Yeah. Who I'm most familiar with, thanks to MXC dubbing over Takeshi's Castle. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> I looked up now, you got to remember too, he is a director on a lot of films. That's true. That's true. But he has also starred in a lot of his own films. And so it'll make it easy to kind of do some of these uh, And he's also criminally underused in Johnny Mnemonic with Keanu. Totally agree. So some of the films that he helped direct and start in were Violent Cop, Boiling Point, you just mentioned Johnny Mnemonic. He was also in the film I mentioned that I'd seen, it's called Kikujiru. He's also in Battle Royale 2, The Blind Swordsman, the Zatoichi film we were talking about. He's in a Dakashi Miike film that I actually own, and it's called uh, Izo. Yep. I was like, whoa, I actually got that, that I film. I'm pretty sure I'm borrowing from you and is in my closet right now. The movie's fucking dope. And another film that just came out, I think last year, was Ghost in the Shell. Yep. So he's been in some of those. He's a highly celebrated comedian oh, as well in Japan, especially in the early part of his career and making his name. Yeah, he certainly is. So before he got into like some of his directing bits and you know the stuff that he's known for. Part of a two-man routine. I think a Japanese two-man differs a little bit from our traditional two-man, but there is still a straight man and a joke man. <laughs> yeah. And he was the joke man. Awesome. I can see that, given his demeanor mm -hmm. and the way that his timing is. Yeah, If I'm not mistaken, too, I think he's known for some of his artwork as well, which is shown in this film. Dude, yeah, dude just does everything. Well, yeah, he's multi-talented. Fucking, he's so cool. So cool. I'm a big fan. I can't lie. So now I can start talking about some of the students in this film. And our main protagonist, perhaps, in this film, this actor's name is Tatsuya Fujiwara. He plays Shuya Nanahara. And some of the films that people might know him for, he's actually in the live-action versions of the Death Note films. He's light. Oh, yeah. And I, I mean, she probably doesn't care because she's an ex, but I have an ex that would kill me since I still have not watched that or given Death Note either. its due. I've only ever heard good things about reading it. Nice. And the Japanese 
movie. Mixed reviews on the uh, I have American. Heard about that. Yeah, likewise, I've heard about that. Uh, however, I also am a bit of a fan of Rurouni Kenshin, and I have yet to watch the live action yeah. that they did. You'll and he it. appears in it as Shishio. That's pretty awesome. Some of the other credits I have him in are as he's lent his voice in the Yakuza game part three and part six, so you might have heard his voice in that. You might have also heard his voice in Pokemon the movie. It's called Hoopa in the Clash of Ages. He was also in the second Battle Royale. Now, opposite him, maybe the female protagonist perhaps in this film is Akimeda. She plays Noriku Nakegawa. And some of the films that she's been in are Battle Royale 2. You might have listened to her voice in The Cat Returns. She's also in Gamera 3 Revenge of Iris. And she's also a singer. She's done J-pop songs. A lot of these people actually are Japanese J-pop artists. Right, yeah. <laughs> it's just kind of funny. The next person I have... Doesn't mean our audience is going to know who which, they are. Yeah, exactly. But I do see you, you have him up. His name is Taro Yamamoto. He plays Shogo Kaiwara in this film. And he's known for two films, Moonchild and Get Up. And he's also a politician. And if I'm not mistaken, I think he's a left-wing style politician like the party he's in. Which also, I mean, how embarrassing would it be if he ended up being a right-wing politician oh my gosh, with considering... this role in his career. Yeah, no shit, right? <laughs> so I did read up a little bit on it. So he's gone on to be more known for a politician these days, which I thought was kind of neat. Also, where, I mean, so on the political spectrum, do you know where Japan's left-wing would lay? Because, oh, like, like, we're shifted to the right. So like oh, our totally left are. wing is still like moderate for like most of the European countries. Totally agree with you there. But like... Their in comparison, do you know where their left wing is? Because I have no idea. I'm just, I'm genuinely it asking. Might fall I'm not... in line with more of the the moderate. Actually, now the more I think about it, I won't say it's totally aligned with the way our politics are, but it's, you know, it's either one of our allies. Hey, if anybody knows and wants to write into us, yeah, and explain to us the Japanese political spectrum, we actually work with somebody who might know. Right. <laughs> Take advantage of that. But yeah, if I'm not mistaken, I think they're a little bit more moderate. I mean, yeah, they're liberal, but to what extent, you know? That's going off topic. I just, I'm curious. I was just a little bit I'll curious say this. when I he, saw that. He plays a pretty badass character in this yeah, one. Yeah, he does. All right, the next person I have is another really well-known actor because I think there's a film that you might own. And this person is Masanobu Ando. He plays Kazuo Kiriyama in this film. And oh. the film I'm talking about... Yeah, I do have the metal case version of awesome. Sukiyaki Western Django. That's Thank you for reminding film, me. Dude. Yeah, he's totally in that. He's in a film called Forever Enthralled, No No Sleep, Kids Return, Big Bane Love Juvenile A. He's in a film I actually own, and it's a really cool concept because it's about when your brain has the synapses connected to different senses. So in this case, for people who hear sound, they might also associate it with color or textures or tastes. So this film I'm talking about is called Synesthesia. Really good film. It's kind of trippy. He's also in a film called Tokyo 10 Plus One. And he's also in the Code Blue television series and the movie. The next person I have, this is an actress. Her name is Koyu Shibisaki. She plays Mitsuko Souma. She's been in films such as 47 Ronin. She was in the film Go. She was in the film Dororo. She's in some horror films of Japan. One is called One and Two. She's also a singer in the J-pop bands KOH Plus and Galaxias with an exclamation point. The next person I have in this film, this is an actress. She's actually more well known for a franchise. Well, I'll say franchise. There was two films. 
And there's a fan of this film in particular, and that's the reason why he used her. But this actress is Chiaki Kuriyama. She plays Tekako Chigusa in this film, and she's in Kill Bill Volumes 1 and 2. Uh, playing almost the same role. Yeah, basically. She plays Gogo Yubari in that film. She's also in the horror film, which I own because it's a part of a four-pack. It's called Shikoku. She's also in Ju-On the Curse, which is the Japanese version, of course. She's in Izumi Part 2, Death of Love. She's in The Great Yukai War. You might have seen her in another Takashi film, Blade of the Immortal. And she's also in the animated Dragon Age Dawn of the Seeker. I can't believe I still haven't watched Blade of the Immortal. I was so excited for it to come out, and then I've just ignored I know, it. Dude. Well, I know we're fans of Mike, but it's just a matter of time at this point. Right, that, that's the thing. I'm not too worried about it. I know I'm going He's to get to it. He's got 100 fucking films to his credit, yeah. so we'll get to it at some point. The next person I have in this film is Takashi Sukamoto. He plays Sinji Mimura, and you might know him for films such as Midnight Sun, The Princess Blade, Blue Spring, Outrage, and Godzilla, Mothra, and King Ghidorah. All Out Monsters Attack from 2001 is a fucking fantastic movie. It's like the 26th film in that part. What's the name of that, that company? Do you remember? Toy? Yeah, is it Toy? Or, or I don't know how to pronounce it, but it's... There, yeah, it's like the 26th monster film, basically, in Japan, with those names associated with it. But that was kind of cool. Now, I have watched that one because I am a fan of Godzilla. That is one of the better ones you could ever sit down and watch. And it ends with just an insane fight involving all three of the title monsters. No shit. (laughs) That's pretty awesome. Okay, I got to bring this person up. And actually, I don't have to bring him up because I know who they are. So this person is Sosuke Takeoka. They play Hiroki Sigumura in this film. You might have also seen them in Blue Spring, another film I own. Crows Zero, they were in one and part two, and the Zatoichi the Last, and also another Takashi Miki film, Thirteen Assassins. It's like, whoa. Ooh, that's a good movie. Yeah, it is a really good film. Now, this person I'm about to bring up has only one film that's worth mentioning, but they're known as an idol slash actress. And this person is Iri Ishikawa. She plays Yuki Utsumi in this film. She was in the film Seven's Face, and the reason why I mentioned that she's an idol, perhaps... And she's an adult video actress and model. So if you're familiar with Japanese adult videos, you might have seen her. The other person I have in this film, he plays the father of our main character in this film. He's not in it for very long, mostly in flashback sequences. But this person is Takashi Taniguchi. He plays Nanahara no Atosan. And the reason I bring this person up is because he's done voice acting for such things as Yu Yu Yokusho. The Ghost Files. He was also in Crest of Betrayal. He was Mr. Masters in Street Fighter 2 V as the voice of Mr. Masters. He was in Battle Royale 2. You might have heard his voice as Harry Anders in Helsing. And he also was Makube in Helsing Ultimate, the Japanese OVA version. I was like, nice. Right. Yeah, so I had to put him down. I think I do see an actress you have is Yuko Miyamura. And she is basically instructional video lady in the film. One of the most insane sequences in this movie. There is some really good black comedy scattered throughout this movie. But she's known as, um, well, she's an actress and a voice actress, singer. She doesn't, you know, have a J-pop career. Yeah. But as far as the voice acting goes, 
Like, she's had some pretty good roles that people might... Yeah, I was kind of looking at these, too. She was Soryu in Neon Genesis Evangelion. Mm -hmm. And she was Chun-Li in Street Fighter. Yeah, I don't know. I I couldn't find which Street Fighter, though, because I don't think she's been Chun-Li in all of them. No, I would imagine probably not. Uh, And to be honest, I only looked for, like, three minutes. It's probably not hard to find, but... I wonder if it's just her... Yeah, it's just her voice, perhaps. (laughs) That's pretty awesome, though. So, yeah, I mean, that's basically who I have in this film. There's one other actor who's got like a laundry list of films he's in the special edition version and i don't want to quite mention who he plays he's a friend of a character's mother's from a flashback sequence right i didn't have him written down but i was like he's got like almost 200 film credits to his name so yeah once we get to that part i might bring him back up but that pretty much rounds out the cast and crew that i have written down now you mentioned there's like 42 kids, we only mentioned a handful. Yeah, most of them don't end up with much screen time they anyway. They certainly don't. I did read about like the giant casting process and stuff. Oh gosh, and yeah, that would have been nuts. I'd say, just to sort of sell the movie a little bit without getting too deep into it, yeah, yeah. one of the high points of this movie is how well it's able to balance its cast. I agree with um, that. Over the end credits, there's a class picture the camera bounces around and just shows different parts of the picture. And I found myself that by the time you got to the end of the movie, as it went and showed different parts of the class, you could pretty much remember what happened to each kid as you were looking at the picture. Oh, totally. I mean, even if you don't remember their name. Yeah, even if you don't remember the name, like, this movie does a really good job of, even though it can't spend time with the kids, of making sure that, like, you get something with them. That's pretty cool, yeah. And balancing that insane balancing act. Yeah, considering there's a wealth of people in this film. and But, you know, the good thing is, is they don't pay a whole lot of attention to all of them. They give you just enough to give you an idea. So all we have left is a warning for this, right? Yeah. Warning, this movie's about kids killing each other. Yeah. Fucking A. I don't know what else I should say. It's insanely bloody. Super Not violent. the most amount of gore. No, gore but it has some good blood. moments. There's a little bit here and there. Especially with, like, a decapitation. Yeah, decapitations, there's a few other things. So this is what it reminded me of. If you're familiar with, like, the type of blood effects on, like, Chambara movies, the Japanese sword fighting flicks. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. This is very similar to that, except it's super bloody. It's about kids killing. It's about middle schoolers fucking killing each other. So that's going to just set off people by itself. Yeah, so if you don't like... Violence in general, if you don't like kids having to commit violence on each other, if you don't like confined islands, <laughs> then you're probably not going to be too much in this film. But for those who enjoy that kind of shit, you're in for a good film. Oh, that's a great film. I fucking love this movie. Likewise. I love this movie. I'm glad that we took the time to, to revisit it. Yeah, me too. So, let's squeal. squeal? Yeah. God, what's happening to me? God, where am I? Why am I hearing these things? Oh God, what, what's going on? Oh Jesus, come on! Oh my God, what's what's going on? Where where am I? Oh gee, why why? Come on, somebody, somebody! Ah, come on, come on, come on! Come on, somebody! Sir, come on, somebody, somebody's there! Somebody's got to be there! I will shock you! Come on, sir, come on, sir, you must listen to me. Sir, I only have one question. How does that make you squeal? Alright, so now we must warn people this is a spoiler-heavy section. Yeah, so most kids die. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Almost everyone dies. For the most part, yeah. 
I agree. Totally. Of the like 43 Facts. main characters, 41 of them die. <laughs> yep. So keep that in mind when you're watching this film, too. Now, for those who haven't, I guess to give you kind of an idea of how this film starts, too, it gives you kind of a, a little bit of exposition, mostly text. But now keep in mind, we talked about the fact that this is like an alternate Japan, probably turn of the century, right? or millennium, I should say, for that matter. So at that point in Japanese time, there was a 15% unemployment rate. There were 10 million people out of work. There were 800,000 students who boycotted school. The juvenile crime rates were soaring, and the adults enacted the Millennium Educational Reform Act, better known as the BR Act. The Purge Act for children. The Purge Act for kids. And instead of one crazy night, you get three full days. So, a couple things that I can comment on from the novel, I will. I won't be able to do it the entire way through, because I did not reread it recently. But that's expanded a little bit. In fact, the movie only really talks about the politics of it all in just that beginning part. Yeah, and is. then it's just about the kids, which is, I mean, I'm fine with that because it's a great movie. You get a little bit more of like the whole politics of the situation in the book. Japan has been a military dictatorship since at least 1917. Okay. The first BR program occurred in 1947. Hmm, interesting. And so by the time the novel happens... It's already been going on for like half a century. Makes sense when you look <clears throat> at it that way, yeah. Let's see. Like the unemployment, all that. Pretty is, much the same. Is, is the, kind of the same. The government's doing it under the ruse of studying like survival tactics. But then they reveal that the whole point... Oh, it's a little bit different too because in the movie it's like one class is chosen every year out of god what's the number they give i can't remember they they give the number of classes but it's like a lot of them in the book it's like 50 classes every year okay out of nine thousand. jesus christ so this is more of a social experiment at that point i mean as far as numbers well you find out behind the scenes that the government did it the whole thing's a weird allegory for like the old mistrusting the young and there's weird things back and forth because the young do tend to be a bunch of delinquents and shit is going bad because of this dystopian future under this military dictatorship mm-hmm. that can be seen by some as a commentary on like the economy of the time. I don't know enough of the Japanese, Japanese geopolitical yeah. situation to actually comment on that portion of it. But there are definite themes of like mistrust of the youth that go on throughout the novel and the movie. Where was I going with that? We were just kind of talking about, like, the numbers involved with, like, the differences, oh. you know, in the so novel and the film. So, the reason the government's doing it in the novel that is given is to make it so the younger portions of the population can't... It's to sow distrust and terror. Because the way that the games are reported are also, if I remember right, this is where some of the details get hazy, but it's kind of in detail, where, like, there's updates on all the different BR programs going on. And it's telling you, like, you know, right when kids are dying, and I think, like, who's killing who and stuff. And the idea is to put the notion into the populace's head that your neighbors can turn on you at any moment. Mm -hmm. You don't truly know them. The old people, basically anybody in, like, mid-20s and up, for the sake of the novel, are kind of considered the older generation. And they're using their power structure that they inherited, the military dictatorship, to 
be able to exploit the fear in the younger generation so that they can't fully rise up. Yeah, that makes sense. I see what to you're take saying, over. Yeah. It's a way of repression in a generation. Yeah, it's keeping yeah. a revolution from happening because everybody that would be a revolutionary can't trust each other. Right. And they said it in this, I won't say a minute because it's not minute, but in, in a certain age frame where you're right, it's hard to get this swing and momentum of a revolution happening. I mean, that's a pretty cool concept. I like that. And it makes sense when you look at it being a metaphor for what possibly could have been the geopolitical situation, perhaps in Japan or just in the Western world, Eastern world. You know, it happens kind of all over, unfortunately. But kind of like to know a little bit more, you know, like you were talking about the geopolitical references. But While we're on that note, yeah. one of my notes kind of pertains to that. Uh, not necessarily the geopolitical, but on the cultural differences of what would have been happening around that time period. Because 2001, just a year later, gives us Visitor Q, Ooh, which is also a social commentary it is. involving some of the differences between the older generation and the youth, and portraying the youth... I mean, a lot of the youth in that movie are bullies yeah, and delinquents and hyper-violent and are shown as the older generation being afraid of them as they are in Battle Royale. It's interesting. And we did mention, you know... And I'm wondering making, what you know. the cultural... I mean, these are only two examples, but I'm wondering if there was some sort of weird culture shift at that time in Japan where yeah. there was like a fear of the huh. youth. That's interesting. Uh, yeah, you had to do a little bit. Or more some aspects of whatever the youth movement was bringing at that time. That's a good point, man. Now that you think about it too, I mean, because that kind of fits into what our generation. But the only difference is that was in Japan, as far as the youth. Right. Let's also like pop back real quick though, because there's something I kind of want to get into. Like, what's your history with this movie? Kind of curious because it's That's the movie it itself has a history of like controversy. That's and... a good point. I'm trying to think exactly what year I had seen it for the first time. It was probably, I would wager, probably like 10 years ago or so, somewhere around that time period. I wasn't quite 30 yet, but I think I was on the verge of it. I'd watch it because I knew a little bit about it, you know, being like a fan of Japanese films. And I was like, ooh, I kind of recognize some of the people in this just from some of the previous films I had owned. Making a long story short, I didn't know a whole lot about it, kind of what we've been talking about with the political aspect. I just knew it from what I read on the cover. It's like, it looks like Lord of the Flies kind of version with a lot more people in Japan because I had to read that shit in school and, you know, I've seen the films. So I was like, huh, I wonder how much they're incorporating that aspect of it, you know, how much of the survival aspect of it. But after watching, I was like, well, this is, yeah, completely different. In terms of there can be only one. I always had a kind of a weird relationship. Well, not weird, but my relationship with this movie goes back a bit. I was so curious about it for a long time. It is a movie that drew a bunch of controversy, especially upon its release. Oh, yeah. And how soon it came out. Well, the book came out in 99, right after we had Columbine. Yeah. But Japan had something happen as well. I'm trying to go back and think if I can remember anything. I can't remember what it was, but something, some violence happened there as well around that time period. So it was already courting controversy. The movie is hyper-violent, not with the intent to titillate, but to show the horrificness yeah, of the violence. And, I mean, it was too soon. You know what I mean? Yeah. After all this shit going on, all these kids... Plus, it's kids killing each other. 
Jesus <clears throat> Christ. Yeah, I know. And that's something, too, that we talked about a little bit with when we did our episode of Idle Hands. The reason why some of those films at that time period, you know, were kind of touchy is because of the Columbine stuff that was going on at the time. So stuff that didn't dealt with any kind of teen violence was kind of, you know, yeah, you don't want to really want to show that at that time period. Around the time it came out, I would have been like freshman, sophomore in high school and like manhunt would have came out and so like i've always been into the dark fucked up shit and like i bought manhunt specifically because it was was banned in a few countries and i heard word of battle royale because it was banned in a few countries and it's about fucking kids killing each other in all the circles i ran in for a long time it was always kind of a legendary thing because that early on there wasn't much and much reliable peer-to-peer file sharing yet, especially in my little podunk town in Montana. A lot yeah, of us were still it. on dial-up, so it wasn't worth Take it trying forever. to fucking pirate it. But even into, like, college, I remember, like, running into kids who were like, yeah, fucking, because it didn't get an official release to 2012. Yeah, quite a while from its initial theatrical release, yeah. So unless you were had a good enough connection leading up to those years before all of us were on fucking high-speed internet, it was always just kind of like this legendary, it's banned in a few countries, it's about kids killing each other, it's so fucking hardcore, man. Yeah. You know, people would see it at festivals, and so the legend would grow a little bit. And Fast forward, late 2011, early 2012, I'm working at Kmart, and sort of starting to crush on this chick that works in soft lines a little bit, and I know that she's kind of nerdy and knows a thing or two about thing or two, especially when it came to like Japan and manga and this or that. And the uh, press is just going full storm for Hunger Games. And so this is why I remember this came out in March. I'm like, man, this gal's cute. She seems really cool. I need a fucking conversation starter. I go up to her and I can't remember what I said, but I'm like, fucking Hunger Games. More like bullshit Battle Royale, am I right? I hadn't seen it at that time. I hadn't read it yet at that time. That's funny, yeah. But she fucking picked up on it. We started bullshitting back and forth. Ended up going on three dates. Nothing ever happened. There wasn't really any sparks, unfortunately, but... Well, at least you know now, right? After I fucking... I spat that out at her, that night I freaked out, and I'm like, fuck, I gotta know something about this now. (laughs) So I pirated the movie, watched it. Oh, no, I didn't pirate it. And that's why I know when this happened. Because I was going to pirate it, but I saw that it was coming out soon. So I got the digital version of the book, okay. read it over the course of the next week, so I could actually talk with her about it. <laughs> Makes sense, yeah. <laughs> I just fucking pounded that 666-page book like every night after work for like the next week. And then bought the movie, which... I always remember came out on March 20th, 2012, because then three days later was the Hunger Games release. And I remember thinking it was super funny that, <laughs> that they were funny. obviously fucking capitalizing on yeah, exactly. the similarities. And the controversy was bucking up at the time because there were a lot of Battle Royale fans, especially yeah. online, yeah. in those vocal little contingents on the internet that were not happy that the Hunger Games movie was happening. Or that the... It. Or that the book had ever happened. and Yeah, that is interesting. <laughs> As such, I have been hashtagging all of our shit, fuck Hunger Games. I don't actually really have much against the Hunger Games, but it ties into my whole history with this movie. I so. completely understand that. Like, so I've got nothing against those films either. I think I've only seen the first Hunger Games film, and it's like, yeah, it's alright. You know, whatever, it's not really my cup of tea. But, knowing what we know about this film, and the parallels, <laughs> you can't help but like, come on, man. 
But anyhow, yeah, it, it has an interesting history as one of those films you, you mentioned that was heavily banned in a lot of countries. I think it's kind of funny, and I know the reasons why a little bit, for Germany, like, banning a lot of films, given their history in general. Yeah, we don't let you do much, Germany. We're sorry. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think it's kind of interesting because, of you know, it represses certain things in society, but it also... In an interesting way, it helps flourish the creative in those sub-pockets in the populace. So in a lot of ways, something that is meant to keep you away from something and only makes certain people want it more, or at least express it more. So probably good examples of that when I think of German, it's like the art house films, <laughs> which we'll get to at some point. But yeah, I just I find it amusing in a sense, like... Don't you know if you try to ban something, people just want it that much more? They're going to find ways to bootleg it. That actually plays into the novel a little bit. I was going to say, if you've read the novel, the flashback to Nobu and Shuya in the fucking foster house or whatever is even a little bit more poignant with Shuya playing guitar. You know, he says later, you know, Nobu taught him him and everything. Part of all the political aspect of the novel, I keep pointing at my DVD, not the novel. (laughs) I know what you mean. It's relevant is that rock and roll music was banned. There's lots of Bruce Springsteen references because the author is a huge fan. Bruce Springsteen! Throughout the entire movie, like, Born to Run is quoted over and over again. (laughs) You know, that kind of makes sense now, looking at the end, in a way. But Nobu's guitar, he was only able to have it because he had it especially government-sanctioned. Wow. And it had, like, he had to have a sticker on it that said something like, this instrument will not be used for, like... Rock and roll. Basically, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not going to be used for rock and roll, basically. It, it yes. had to have a giant sticker on it saying... That is hilarious. You can't tune this shit and drop D. Yeah. <laughs> no heavy metal. That's funny. But, I mean, it does make sense. And that kind of what we're talking about, again, and knowing a little bit about the history of rock and roll and countries that ban it, you get these pockets of people who want it, and they'll find ways of getting it. It's funny, but it happens. Maybe while I'm already pointing out differences, I'll just throw out a couple of the other yeah, differences yeah, yeah. for you. And we'll just blow through those all at one time. I'm cool with that. The novel, Shinji plays a much bigger part for the first half of it. Okay. For the whole first half of the novel, you're not quite sure if he might be the main protagonist. And he's sort of made to be like the perfect student, and it kind of seems like everything's going to work out. And even most of the time, Shuya runs into other classmates. He's like telling them, like, don't worry, Shinji's going to come up with something. He's going to save us all. Yeah, you know, that's, I know what you're talking about. He was more like the class leader. Mm-hmm. But then he ends up getting killed halfway through instead of like three quarters of the way through like he does in the film. Yeah. And not that he has that much screen time anyway in the film. They really, really play him down. They certainly do, yeah, given what you were just saying. And then from that point on, it's, like, really apparent that Shuya is actually, like, the protagonist of the novel. Like, there's no bones about it. But up to that point, it's, like, it's it's kind of, like, a really, like, turn. It's, like, oh, shit, like, because you even have Shuya that entire time sort of backing it up. Like, don't worry, Shinji's going to come up with something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's pretty cool. Let me think. Kiriyama. Okay. They go into a bit more. In the womb. I don't remember what happened, but something happened. And he suffered some massive brain damage, Mm. and he can't feel emotions. Okay, I can see that. In the movie, it's just like, oh, he's the one here that enjoyed it. You know, he's the one that fucking signed up because he wants to and shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the book, it's more like Shinji's made out to be the perfect student, 
And the bus ride in the book is like a huge long sequence where Shuya is like looking around the bus and talking about what everybody does and like, oh, we're all on the basketball team together. Like the basketball sequence from the director's cut also is like a huge shout out to the book because with Shuya being on the team, that's how a lot of the relationships within the book are formed. And, and like, I can see that. People who are on the team and how they're related to each other through who they know and who, get, who they clicks. hang out with and yeah. stuff. And so the extended director's cut sequences sort of show that a lot better than the theatrical cut. Okay. But it's a much bigger thing in the novel. But he goes through and he's listing off, you know, this person's good at this, this person's good at this, as he's looking around the bus. Kiriyama, everything he does is, like, effortless. He can keep up with the person that's the master of this. He can keep up with the person that's the master of that. And it all just comes to him naturally. And it takes him, like, no time. But he can feel no emotions. Like, he does kind of lead kind of a click and sort of puts on a facade so that he's not called out. But he truly feels no emotions. He literally is brain damaged and can't feel emotions. And so even when he's going through the Battle Royale program, he's not enjoying it. He can't enjoy it. It's just another thing for him to master. I see what you're saying, yeah. It's just another routine, I suppose. Ooh. So the book gets really dark. Yeah, I like this. Uh, this is kind of hinted at in one line in the film. Okay. But, uh, oh shit, what's her name? The chick that's super into going around killing people. Is it Mitsuko? Yeah. In the director's cut, we do find out that like her mom was a piece of shit that like was <laughs> trying to sell her to the old dude to get fucking yeah. raped as a like five-year-old child. Yeah, they kind of show that in, I think, the cut we watched. It's implied that she's brazenly using her sexuality to at least lure in a couple of the kids mm. that we see at a different portion we later We do. On. You don't really get a whole lot behind it, yeah. But the movie also implies that it was being thrown into this program that was sort of the thing that like finally broke her. You see the basketball game sequence where she's estranged she's a, from yeah. everybody, yeah, yeah. but she's not. She's still kind of hopeful. Like She's still getting into it when the team wins and shit, but... As soon as she's thrown into this program, like, she's out for fucking blood. In the novel, she's broken way before she's thrown into the program. She was definitely (laughs) repeatedly sexually abused as a child and had gotten to the point where she was running a prostitution ring with some of the other girls. She was basically, like, pimping out some of the other girls in her class to old dudes. Damn. Since you're on that, I said I was going to mention the guy who portrayed that role in the film. Mm -hmm. That gentleman's name is Tarusua. Yeah, and he's been in a shit ton of films. But, yeah, I was kind of curious about that. Like, oh, well, that kind of explains a little bit about her backstory, but... One of Hitomi's lines, I think it's Hitomi, Yeah, sort of alludes to that, too. Yeah, well, yeah you're right. There's, like, an exchange they have where, they, yeah, they kind of talk about, like they said, the sexualized versions of stuff. Like, you just want this person. Outside of that, if you don't have a larger reference, it's kind of, it can be just taken as, you know... Maybe some exposition <laughs> now it's a little bit. I think there's only a couple other minor differences that I was able to remember to note down. In the novel, more of the kids actually actively participate. Okay. Like that group that in the film that Kiriyama just like mows down. I don't think that happens. I think all of those kids like are doing shit. Yeah. And are actually actively participating. Nice. And some of this stuff in the film seems a little bit more accidental of run-ins than they really are. Right. Like Oda, the kid with the bulletproof yep. vest, in the novel he's actively participating and he'll allow himself to get shot and when they come to check his body, he'll fucking strangle him. I think in the manga he uses a knife. 
I haven't read it. I know of the manga, but that's pretty cool. In the film, the reward is they get to live. <laughs> yeah. In the book, they at least get a very small government pension for the rest oh, of their life. Oh, no shit. Thank you for <laughs> and your service. And I think a wow. signed headshot of the fucking dictator. <laughs> wow. Damn. That's kind of fucked up, isn't it? Shogo is way more covered with scars. Yeah, he was cool, man. I liked him a lot. Like I said, there wasn't much I could quite remember all the way because it has been a long time. And it's a giant book. Really, I mean, you you get a lot. It gets so much more emotional than the film, which is weird because this is a strangely emotional movie for it being about kids killing each other. Or maybe strangely not emotional. Well, I mean, it's touching because, yeah, Mm -hmm. you know, these are kids that, for the most part, they've probably been in all the same classes since they were kids growing up and... You know, they form these bonds with their friends and then they have to go in and literally have to kill or be killed to survive <laughs> this fucked up game. So, yeah, I mean, oh, you're going to be a little emotional. I remember now. The other big, big change, huge change, but not for the worse, just for the different, is Beat Takeshi's character is completely different. Okay. Different name. I can't remember the character's name in the novel, but the program director is like gleefully sadistic and is a rapist and is like taking great delight at the fact that the program is engineering these kids into these situations and like almost getting off on like when some of these meat kids are like killing kids to defend themselves and are being forced into being murderers and shit. (laughs) Like I said, it goes way more into the emotion. Holy fuck. I'm going to jump like to the end Mm -hmm. When they kill Kiriyama, it is Nanako that does it, and she can't bring herself to hurt anybody until he's about to kill Shuya, but she's about to fucking mentally break down over the fact that she even had to pull the trigger to save the life of her friend. Yeah, yeah. And so Shogo recognizes that and pretends, like, puts another round into Kiriyama to pretend that he's the one that pulled the trigger just to keep her from fucking breaking on the spot. Sometimes you gotta do what you gotta do, right? I can't remember the name, but, like, one of the guys in the class, when Mitsoko kills him, he was one of the other pacifists in the class, and so firmly refuses to believe that she could be evil in any way that her killing him causes her to break down for a good portion of the novel and she like holds him for a little bit and makes sure when she's actually goes to kill him she guiding him she sort of like puts her face up in front of his face and smiles so that her smiling face is the last thing he sees and before he dies and I see, like yeah I see what you mean by the emotional aspect of it. it's like it's not just the kill itself it's like there's a lot that goes into the kill and how they handle it, each individual character. And I'm, I'm actually impressed with how much emotion that this movie's able to bring. That's what come, uh, some of my notes are. Yeah, I mean, some are. of it, you know, you can tell there was a bond with a lot of these kids and the cliques that they were associating themselves with. But I think I got through all of my notes of the shit that I could remember that was different. Cool. Just nope. for anybody who was at all interested. Yeah, I'm uh, not I hope familiar. I didn't spoil the book <laughs> too badly for any of you. No, I, I like that, though, because it does show you, you know, what it has in common and, and the contrast that it has as well. I mean, just looking at it from here, it's like I can tell there's a lot of shit in that book that we're not going to get in this film, which is okay, you know. it's Like I said, it's hard to translate everything into a, a movie. Honestly, even though I said it was one of the big changes... 
I might like the beat Takeshi director yeah. more than the program director in that. I like Partially, him. though, because I don't yeah. get the cultural reference. From what I understand, the director in the novel is a very subtle play on a really famous cultural character in Japan. Okay. From a TV show that I guess everybody fucking watched, Kenpachi Sensei. And the class is actually the same class number as the show, as a reference to it. It's yeah, year three, just... class B, which is straight from the Kenpachi Sensei show. That's pretty interesting, yeah. So, yeah, I would imagine culturally in Japan, a lot of people got that reference, yeah. But since I don't get that, I, I love the crazy... I mean, Beat Takeshi's character is so... He's almost tragic until he's such a like when you figure a, a out dickwad yeah. too. Yeah, it, it is kind of an interesting too. I like the requiems in this film because they do have that manga esque feeling to them, and that's kind of what it made me think of when I was watching this film or rewatching it. Especially those basketball scenes. Like if anybody's familiar with any type of anime or manga, it's like it's funny how Japan artists and just maybe entertainment how much they want to westernize themselves. Mm-hmm. And how they personify it. You wouldn't think the first thing you think of sports in Japan is not basketball. <laughs> but it's funny how it's portrayed. They do a good job with the action beats is I guess what I'm wanting to say too. It reminds me of that and it's kind of funny in a way. Oh, I should also mention it being Battle Royale. There's a huge reason for that too. And that's the author was a giant wrestling fan. And the entire like intro to the book is talking about like <laughs> legit talking about like WWF tag teams and nice. like, the difference between a normal match and a battle royale and how oh, you know, it that, sometimes yeah. ends okay. up and how it sometimes ends up wow. meaning that these people that normally work together end up having to turn on each it other. Makes total and, sense. Yeah, and actually references that. like real yeah. battle royales yeah. from like WrestleManias of the that's past and stuff. Funny. But Huge given the fucking title, fan. it's like, yeah, that makes perfect sense when you look at it and wrestling. I also think it's funny, but we might be doing this at almost the perfect time, mm-hmm. even though I don't think either of us plays Battle Royale games. But now there is a video game genre that is Battle Royale games, huh. like Fortnite Battle Royale, I did see, uh, yeah, some Player Unknown Battlegrounds, PUBG, Arma 3, a bunch of games out there. The genre is called Battle Royale. That's pretty awesome. Because of this movie... Because of the play style is everybody against everybody in the end, I guess. Or in some ways, I don't know. I don't fucking play them. Because none of them, I'm going to go right now. For years after I saw this movie, I would tell people over and over again, they should turn this movie into a video game. I don't think it would attract a big audience because I wanted them to do it way closer to the movie. Where it's almost like this super strung out surviving scenario where you get really shit weapons yeah. and you're on this fucking island with not much to go on. You're wandering around just trying to kill people before they kill you. Yeah. And in my mind, it was always like super long matches, super almost like survival horror, except multiplayer. Kind of, in a way, what the Friday the 13th game has managed to accomplish a little bit when you're actually playing as the campers. Yeah. It can be pretty fucking terrifying with Jason hunting you. Just imagine. But if you did it like that, like, except all on all, a lot closer to this, I always thought that would be brilliant. From everything I've seen of the current generation of Battle Royale games, none of them seem to offer that. However, I haven't really looked into it that much, and if somebody wants to correct me and point me towards a game that fulfills what I've always wanted out of this, thank (laughs) you very much. Awesome, dude. It goes to show like how much it influences other forms of media too, which is kind of cool. But 
One question I have in general, and I thought it was kind of interesting that they kept it in perhaps, but also knowing some of the Japanese stuff that I watch and we've watched, it makes sense, is there's a flashback sequence of Shuya's dad hanging himself. And if you pay attention to his bed sheets, you see some liquid substance on his bed. I mean, it's not implied. They show that he has his pants around his legs. And I'm like, damn, did he jerk off before he hung himself? No, I think oh, the, thing that, the, the thing that was wrapped around his neck that said, go, Shuya. By the way, that was super fucked up. Yeah. It was toilet paper. Because when you followed it, it led all the way yeah, back yeah, exactly. to the bathroom. Because it's like a suicide note. And it was still attached to the roll. And I think he came straight out from the bathroom and hung himself and didn't even really bother to finish up. Oh, I see what you're saying, And yeah. so I think that was piss and shit below. I, that's what I was like, man, I... It's like, I know people are into some weird stuff, you know what I mean? I know, that's... I was kind of wondering that the first time, too. I'm like, did he fucking... Did he... Yeah, I was like, well, he, he's not completely naked. He's yeah. damn there. But that would make sense, too. Like, he could have shatter pissed and then... You know, didn't make the effort to pull himself up or his pants off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just ended it. I, I mean, it was too. obvious he had something wrong with him, too. You know, later on in the film, mm-hmm. too, you could tell there was some kind of financial or... The kid even talked about his mom stepping out when he was, like, in fourth grade. So it would have been just a few years prior to that, too. So Okay, so maybe that clarifies <laughs> that a little bit. I can't really think of, like, anything too major. You know, I mean, this movie, for the most part, is pretty straightforward. You kind of get what the hell's going on. That's why I like the director's cut at the end of the film, too. Those requiems, they play them out again, but you can actually get a little bit more, maybe, subtext mm-hmm. to those conversations and what the hell they mean. So I know that they appear in number two, but I've never seen number two. I do know if anybody's wondering about a possibility of the future of Nanako and Shuya, I do know how the manga ends. Oh, yeah? Even though I've never read it, because it does kind of give a little bit of an afterword for what happens. And I think it gives it from Shuya's point of view, but I'm not positive on that. It ends up just fucking depressing. Because they do end up together. Okay. Even though it's never clearly shown that he does like her back in the course of the events. In the novel, it goes into it a little bit more, and he's kind of like, yeah, she's really awesome, but I really don't want to be hitting on this girl that my friend was into so soon after he died. Too soon. Too soon, yeah. In the novel, it seems a lot more like it's too soon. In the film, they very much make it out to be he's protecting her with maybe a little bit of a love interest. But there's been a couple other girls that expressed interest, and he didn't seem to mind that either. So he definitely is just kind of like, cool, whatever, going with the flow of whatever's happening. Yeah, just letting it happen. The manga makes it clear that they got together afterwards. Okay. But their relationship... I don't think it ever makes clear whether it fully ended or not, but it at least has went into the shitter because of their PTSD from going through the program. And he mentions that he was never even able to say that he loves her even when times were going good. Damn. Damn, that's kind of bleak, yeah. (laughs) I mean, you know, that's kind of interesting how they try to incorporate a little bit of that into the film. You know, like, Mm -hmm. he's not really into her. Even when she, like, approaches him with cookies. <laughs> right. Well, the other thing they hint at... I have memories now stirring. The other thing they hint at that is revealed in the novel is that basically half the girls in the class all had a crush on him. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of funny because... They hint at there that, There are but... several girls throughout that island who are like, yeah, he's cute. Yeah, but no, fully half of them, half the girls in the class at least, 
wanted some of Shuya. Wanted some of Shuya. Damn. You go, boy. And although they wanted some of Shuya, I think it's also implied that they were getting some of Shinji. Oh, damn. Well, I mean, this is going to sound kind of messed up, but I mean, some pockets of the culture itself are very promiscuous. Yeah, during the basketball sequence in the novel, he has a mental thought of whether he has enough condoms to bang all the fangirls. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> I can see why they were ballers now. <laughs> That's funny. But how much do they portray Noriko Nakagawa as like being ugly and they want to kill her? I don't like remember that so much. Okay. I was kind of curious, because they kind of make that a big deal a little bit in the film. I know, that's that's what I was thinking too, and that was one of the parts that I still couldn't fucking remember. Couldn't remember. Do, does any of her being like, almost like this exalted figure by Katano? You know, he like he draws that painting, and they have that dream sequence together. And oh no, like, he's not even in the book. Oh, that's right, yeah there's, a, yeah, there's a difference. Okay, I wasn't sure if there was even any of that incorporated. No, that's... Completely it's different. Own weird okay. little thing. Which yeah, I was kind of. Awesome. Yeah, I, I do like that. It's kind of weird, but all right. <laughs> so I know there's nothing there. While we're there at the end, yeah. What did you think of the very end there? I understood it. I kind of had a feeling that's what was going on. Well, I mean, I mean, even prior. I mean, even just like the last message, I guess is what I was thinking because I part of my notes is that that last final run and mm-hmm. the last sentence and what he's saying and everything. Seems to kind of end on a high note. I, I don't mean the requiems. I think of no, no. I'm, I'm thinking of the end of like where they're the actually in the streets. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I can totally see that. I mean, yeah, because they've escaped this awful experience and they're wanted. <laughs> you know, so yeah. What left do they have to lose except for to run? And it gives them kind of endless possibilities too, if you think about it. Like if they leave Japan, what that could entail for them it can only go up from a certain point. But thinking about that Springsteen reference, it's like, man, maybe <laughs> maybe we were born to run. That's right. <laughs> That's pretty funny. But I do like it. It does end on that upbeat as opposed I, to... Yeah, I felt late. like that run is kind of like a make sure to go live your life sort of run. Yeah, I can see that. But I can't f- remember exactly what he says before that, but in the context of what he says leading into that run. Yeah, yeah exactly. It wasn't something like it was dour or anything like that. And I even think using the flashback of his dad... Like, his final message to him is, go, Shuya. So even that's kind of uplifting in a fucked up way. I feel like the director managed to work a few different themes throughout this movie. Because there's a couple things going on all at once, it's hard to attribute just one thing to any given scene. Because I do feel like that ending scene of them running and living their life and going into the world... And the way that some of the encounters play out between the classmates are just teen melodrama turned up to fucking yeah. 20. You know, this yeah. is past 11. Like, But it's literally like these weird melodrama sequences that totally. every teen experiences some version of, except with, that, with yeah. deadly results. And that's kind of what I was getting at, too. Like, some of that stuff totally reminds me of watching anime and reading some of the manga and how much they put into that aspect. Strangely, what it kind of reminded me of, and it's only because I've been binging it a shit ton lately, was how well Big Mouth does sort of the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Where it plays on these weird little how it actually feels when you're in that moment because at some point we were all teens with fucking hormones (laughs) raging. But also... Not having enough experience to deal with things, this unwillful ignorance of how you should deal with certain situations, 
That's funny. And you just get the extreme examples <laughs> of, like, the lighthouse. Yeah, that's a good point. Or one of the things that sort of drives the point home of teenage melodrama turned up to 11 is when they showed the two girls that killed each other down by the beach. Yeah. Or on the rocks, I guess I it wasn't the beach. The cliffs or whatever. Yeah. Uh, I can't remember their names, but one was literally stabbed in the back with a knife. Yeah. Yeah, that doesn't say something. <laughs> the entire movie as a whole isn't an allegory for learning how to deal with these things and being able to enter adulthood having gone through these little traumas. Mm -hmm. But it's not completely not that, I don't think. No, you made a good point when you say they kind of ratchet it up, you know, beyond really what it is. <clears throat> but, I mean, some people live the, the drama life, you know, and it kind of showcases a little bit of... What, like, I so mean, what the those people... Lighthouse was just that click falling apart because yeah, somebody I mean, kept the secret. The tension ratcheted up so fast and so quick. Yeah, and it shows, like, what that kind of stuff can do <laughs> over nothing. I do like how this film incorporates 42 kids... And they still keep certain factions, but yeah, how easy it is for them to kind of crumble under the pressure. I do like how they have the different deaths. I think they do a really good job with that. They don't keep it repetitive. I won't say everyone, but there's a lot that are unique. In Japanese culture, there's a little bit of like honor death, you know what I mean? With suicide and stuff, it's not really necessarily frowned upon. So in that Which regard, is probably why they were able to get away with it in the movie, but in the book, less people commit suicide. There still are a couple, but... Yeah, exactly. I mean, not that I would know that, but I mean, in the mm -hmm. film, it's like, yeah, these people hung themselves, this person jumped off the building, this person did that. Yeah, so there was a lot more showcasing of that, and just a little bit of experience with some of the culture. I know that it's not it's highly frowned upon as it is in maybe Western culture. Especially after having watched this a number of times now, I found myself laughing even more at some segments that aren't... So parts we keep mentioning are supposed to legit be <laughs> like dark humor. Mm -hmm. I think there's at least one that I laughed at because I made a mental connection. It's not supposed to be funny, right. but Nobu getting killed. <laughs> yeah. I laughed pretty hard because I was talking about Kevin Smith earlier, and I just made the connection like Dante in the first draft of Clerks gets killed at the end to just slam home the point that he wasn't even supposed to be here today. <laughs> yeah. And Nobu... Wasn't he supposed to be there that day? Wasn't even... Yeah, he he had left school. He was one of the fucking delinquent kids. I mean, he was the one that's fucking slashed beat in the beginning. Exactly. He's one of the delinquent kids, for sure. But he wasn't supposed to be there and only came back because... He got roped in the girl. Yeah. Was like, gave him a little bit of hope. Mm -hmm. Go on this field trip. Why not? You might hook up. Yeah, Even though she's in Shuya. Yeah, go figure, right? This big love triangle. That is really good, though. There are some of that dark humor, man. Even some of the gunplay is kind of, like, silly in this film. <laughs> yeah, the gunplay. Jesus. Okay, so that's one of the things I've said about this movie for years, is it makes me absolutely afraid of going to war with Japan, because <laughs> I now think that every Japanese child takes at least, like, 40 bullets to kill. <laughs> yeah, no shit. Well, not only that, it's like... They are a huge fan of the uh, spray and praise. Like, they just randomly shoot at whatever fucking moves. Uh, uh, and they're bad aim, too. <laughs> They also have Uzis with bottomless clips, unless the plot dictates that it needs to run out of bullets. Yeah, that's, that is kind of quite a contrast, man. You think, it's like they got really bad aim, but when they do hit you, it takes a lot of fucking bullets to put you down. Yeah, not many people went down from... One did, shot. Did anybody go down from one shot? I don't think so. Don't think Even so with some either. of those girls, too, that you were using the bullhorn, it took quite a few to put those girls out. And she was still up for a little bit of it. Enough to, <laughs> yeah, to roll around a little bit. Yeah. 
<laughs> that shit's kind of funny. I know who went down from one. Two girls went down from one shot. One arrow through the neck. Yeah, she did. It wasn't a bullet, though, right? It was right. just an arrow. Because the one in the thigh didn't do anything. That was just a scare off. Or, you know, a miss when he was trying to get Shuya. Yeah. And, once again, not a bullet, but the fucking... The knife to the forehead. Yeah. Those are the two. Which, this time through taking notes, this morning, I realized that there was awesome foreshadowing in that scene. Because he had already warned him no whispering. Mm-hmm. And the first time he warns him no whispering, he turns and throws some chalk... And when the girl gets up, it's not the same girl, but when the girl gets up and gets in his face, he pushes right on the spot on the the forehead and pushes her away right there. And so then the second no whisper. Right in the forehead. When you think of foreshadow too, since you brought that up, you got to think of Nobu not being fully in the picture of him. Oh, right. Oh, I thought that too. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty much. I mean, it's clever. The more that we're watching these films, they put it in there kind of interestingly, but that's a little bit more uh, in your face. I don't know. I like the use of the three guys at the end, too. The It was like the hackers and the bomb experts. <laughs> they were like... I was like, man, I know that's kind of based off of this real book, this anti-militaristic anarchist thing. And it's like, man, we have the version of that here in the States. They don't figure out the mics in the book. Okay. That's how they get caught because they... Talking too mm-hmm. much. Yeah. But I was like, that's pretty clever, man, that they had that kind of stuff. The kid hacked into the computer system and... They were they were using that fucking basketball shit. Oh my god, that was too fun to me. That was hilarious. The two of the best scenes in this film for me are also two of the funniest scenes in this film for me. Beat Takeshi fucking owns with his reactions to the explanation with the fucking girl on the screen. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. he just He's oh my funny, god, man. I can it. see. Yeah, that's what I'm getting at. Like his mannerisms and things, they're supposed to be like serious, but it's, it's comical when he gets up and takes the phone call. You know, I totally forgot about that. Like, at the end, he gets shot, and you think he's fucking dead, and then the phone rings, and he gets up and takes it. It's funny, he shoots the phone, and then he dies. Last cookie. (laughs) That was good. And then I was cracking the fuck up this time around when the kids are fucking getting their shit in the beginning and leaving. Yeah. Because it just seemed like some sort of, like, (laughs) reality show with everybody having to do, like, their own little thing to be like, Yeah, I'm Jenny. Yeah, no, it, it is pretty funny, and I, I like how the guards, like the military there, are just throwing the bags at the kids. It's like, yeah, just get your shit and get the fuck out of here. But then on the flip side of things, I made also notes on the emotional moments. Strangely, I found that two of them were things... I think they highlight how well this movie is done overall, because I think most other movies couldn't pull this off because of how it pulls you out of the film. But two of the most emotional moments in the movie for me were accompanied by title cards. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you're saying. With the quotes on them. Yeah. And one was the, God, can I say one more thing? <laughs> when Chigusa? Yeah. When she was, Jesus, that was so fucked up. Because did you catch that too, where she was all about that guy and he didn't like her? They were only friends? Like yeah. he had her in the friend zone? No, he, totally. I mean, she, like, kind of reveals it on him. He's like, all right, I'll comfort you. Oh, my God. That was so... I was just like, God. And then the, God, can I say one more thing when she's dying? And it does the fucking, which title card should bring you out? Yeah. But this movie just does it so well with it. Oh, my God. And then later on with Mitsoko, with the, I just don't want to be a loser anymore. Yeah. After she died. 
<laughs> Basically, yeah, you're right. There's several uses of the title cards, which there are really good. You would think, like you were saying, that they would take you out, but I think they kind of give it a little bit more poignancy, if nothing else, you know. But overall, the film itself, it's a fun ride. Two hours feels like a long time, but there's a lot that goes on. There's a lot of action. There's a lot of beats. It keeps you enough into it with all these different characters, too. Like, they don't all die at once, of course. There's, it's taken over the course of three days. So they at least give you updates. If you don't know the names, they'll at least reference it back to you, you know, just for reference sake. But, yeah, I like it overall for that aspect. It's one, for its controversy alone, I mean, it's going to give you some interest in it, you know. I only have one last thing, and it's literally the last thing in the movie. And it's a big difference, and I think puts an even creepier spin on his character. Mm -hmm. In the theatrical cut, the Requiems don't exist. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's right. You're right. So you never get to hear the audio of Nanako's dream Yeah. with Beat, where the Requiem makes it seem like it wasn't a dream and it was a memory. Even when I was watching that, for, you know, the first Requiem that you see, I was like, man, they're having, like, this shared experience. The second one is definitely a dream because of, the, like, the ball bouncing up and shit. Oh, you even told me that, yeah. The basketball game is a memory. Mm -hmm. And so the yeah, third one can go idea. either way. Yeah. But what the fuck with the last title card? What is an adult supposed to say to a child in this situation? Well, that's kind of what it's getting at, too. It's like, I don't know if they're having this shared memory or the shared dream or, you know, like... What's going on? She has a crush on him and he... Kind of returns it? You gotta say he's kind of reciprocating it a little bit in a weird way. Why else would they be having, like, popsicles on this, like, little waterfront? And what does it mean that she never acknowledged any of this during the movie, too? Yeah. I mean, there's even references throughout the film, like, where he comes up and gives her an umbrella, and then he just kind of walks off. <laughs> you know, there's, right. like, little things like that. That one, I felt a little bit more in context after re-watching, because he does that right after that shitty phone call with his own daughter. Okay, yeah, I see what you mean. So, yeah, he could be just... And, and I feel like that's him, you know, displacing his feelings that he wants to have for his daughter, but she fucking hates him. Yeah, there's that, too. And I think that's another but reference in, but into that the Japanese culture. But that last line, it's like... Ooh, no, that is maybe he thinks of her as more than a daughter. You know, I was thinking, are they related to perhaps? Like maybe that's his daughter, or they could be like a uh, who knows. But yeah, it does leave the oh, like this weird creeping. <laughs> it's fucked up. One thing I was gonna say about the comedy in this too is his name Shogo. Mm -hmm. Some of his lines, he's like, yeah, my dad, he's a doctor, he's a chef. <laughs> he's a captain he's like he sells boats it's like he had an answer for everything his dad did and i thought it was kind of funny he was like i know he was bullshitting but mm -hmm. it's still like it was it's like is this guy for real i like that fuck i don't know if i have any more to say on this i've been talking a lot about this no movie. if nothing else i think it's a fun one i've been talking a lot about the novel and i don't even remember it all that well it just goes to show you know like there's a lot going on in that that wasn't be able to translate it but the director he did a good job of trying to incorporate the feelings the clicks the attachments all these kids had to each other this fucking movie's wonderful it's yeah. so beautifully done the music too is really good we talked a little bit about the composition and just the use of the orchestral movements in this and the pacing of it's really good too it keeps you uh, in it for sure i would recommend the director's cut if only because the surrealness of the added requiems along with the inner cut of 
getting to see Mitsuko's background. Makes sense for her character. And the basketball game as a framing structure just adds to the emotional aspect of this movie and gives a little bit more depth to all the children. It does. And yeah, with that, man, you're right. It's just a fun film. If you like Japanese films, it's definitely one putting in your catalog. And just overall getting to see some of these actors and actresses who went on to become either stay in acting and working with like these Japanese masters we've already talked about Takashi Miike and or if you like J-pop or left-wing politicians in the case of at least one of the actors or for some of our niche audience you might be into adult video actresses <laughs> we've got one of those in this film so it gives you a little bit of everything and it gives you a lot to chew on too when you think about what we talked about the Japanese culture in general how this film is either an allegory for or metaphor for or maybe a satire of yeah, I'm not the one to say. All I know is that We're not it's experts, great. but we kind of get the gist. <laughs> All I know is that it's fucking great, and I wish everybody would watch it. With that in mind, though, we don't know what we're doing yet next week. So No, and that's kind of the fun of it, too. We kind of came off a run of doing that before we had our Purge films, mm-hmm. and I enjoy that, too, just not really knowing what we're doing week to week, just kind of letting it happen. So we're going to go try to figure that out, and we hope that you would continue listening to us in order to do that. You know, this week I'm going to keep it short again and say go to our website, www.friedsquirms.com. There's a bunch of useful links to places to listen to us up at the top. Yeah. You can always stream us down at the bottom. And all the in-between is information about us, including our Facebook, our Twitter, and our Instagram. It I makes totally it agree. super simple. One-stop shop. For the most part, yeah. I mean, you can even message us on there. And if you don't oh, dude, like yeah, that... Yeah, we have a working contact thing. Yeah, which is... It works. We know it works. We know it works because we hear from Marquand all the time. Well, yeah, we do, Marquand. <laughs> but if not, if you like the old format, you can still email us at our address. It's squirmcast at gmail.com. We're open to suggestions. We're open to collaborations. If you just want to holler at us, we'll give you some uh, feedback if nothing else. If you hate my what i say about halloween three <laughs> or know, what i say about rudy <laughs> yeah that's a good point i will say this the more i think about halloween three as a standalone it's not a bad film at all it's just it's not a halloween hey film, it's a se. decent doctor who episode yeah i mean it has its uh, merits you know put david Tennant in it i'm all about it that'd be fun yeah i think this movie could use a remake i know it's not what we're talking about this week but it's relevant but for this week i'm tyler i'm danny Fried squirms out. out.